Turn with me in God's Word, uh, first to Exodus chapter 8. If you could put a finger in uh, Luke chapter 11, that will be our main text this morning. But first, a couple of verses, a few verses from Exodus chapter 8. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 50, chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Beloved saints, this is our God's Word. Uh, let us give our attention to the reading of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And now turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. Uh, We're going to read verses 14 through 26 this morning. Uh, If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 869. Again, this is our God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through a waterless place seeking rest and finds none. Finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This ends God's word. Um, Let us pray that he would be with us uh, as we look at it this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. We ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and your peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scripture. And may your spirit be with us as we read. And may he grant us that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated.
there's a mistake that's easy to make, and it's this. It's the idea that just because you're running from one thing, that you are actually running to or pursuing the opposite. It, it's easy for people to think that they're running from their sin, when in reality what they're running from is the consequences of their sin. They're, they're running from discomfort. They're, they're running from an unhappy life. But that's very different from running toward or to God. Just because you're running from the consequences of your sin and you think you're running from sin does not mean that you are seeking God in His ways. It, it does not mean that you have bowed your knee to King Jesus. Jesus warned in another passage, that on the last day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he warned them that for many he will say, I have never known you. Depart from me. Really, the only division in this world that truly matters is between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. That's it. That's the big division in this world. Those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And this is the point that that Jesus is driving home in our passage today as he interacts with some critics. And we're we're really going to see that there are two kinds of hostility in our passage toward Jesus. The first is obvious and overt. It's it's people who are accusing Jesus of evil and of, of even colluding with the devil. The other is more subtle. It's simple self-interest using Jesus when, he, when it's convenient, but refusing, refusing to bow their knee to him as Lord. And Jesus will respond to both of these in each in a unique way. He will make it clear that he is building the kingdom of God and that uh, all those who accuse him of evil are the ones who are in league with the devil. And then he will address those who seek to control Jesus and let them know that if you're not for him, you are against him, and there is no in-between. And so that's what we're going to look at as we open up this passage this morning. Uh, The first attack is the more obvious form, overt hostility. What got everything started was Jesus healed a a demon-possessed man. And this isn't the first time he's done it. Uh, He's been doing this. He's been healing, uh, casting demons out. And and the disciples have even been doing it. And we even saw that there were some others uh, who were doing this. And uh, it's because this has been going on, Jesus is getting a reputation for this, that, that a crowd gathers, people come, and they want to see this for themselves. And that's just it. Uh, He is getting a reputation as the one who demons fear, and rightly so. But as Jesus' fame and popularity grow, he becomes a greater threat to those who are in power. And so in verse 15, they make the assertion that he's doing all of this by the power of the devil whom they call Beelzebul. And their argument is that, that he appears to have power over the demons because he's in league with them. And yet what evidence do they have that that's the case? What's driving them to this conclusion? After all, what else would you expect from the Lord's anointed, from the Messiah, the long-awaited king, 
What would any objective person assume was going on as this man is going through the land casting out demons? Who would naturally assume, well, clearly, he's friends with the demons? No one. It was not the facts that were driving them to this conclusion. There was no evidence that that was the case. It was an argument made simply to hurt him and defend their power. And that's how the power of presupposition and prejudice works. It can believe the opposite of what seems obvious. It can take any facts and twist them to fit an approved narrative. It can lead you to assume the very worst in others. It's becoming so hardened toward God that you would accuse him of evil when he is doing good. It's coming to that point where you think you stand in judgment over God. And that impulse is alive and well today. Increasingly, people believe that God, the Bible, and Christians are evil because they believe their way is the only way. The world sees the idea of of objective truth as narrow-minded and unkind. They think that God's commands are are bigoted and unloving. They call evil good, and they call good evil. So how does Jesus respond? He responds with simple logic. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and every house divided falls. If he's fighting against Satan's demons by the power of Satan, then Satan would be fighting himself. No army or nation has ever turned on itself and survived. When you turn on your own, you you do your enemy's job for him. The devil may be evil, but he's not an idiot. Satan is fighting God and his people, not himself. And so the idea is preposterous. But Jesus isn't done. If the only possible way to cast out demons is with the devil's help, what does that mean for the other Jews who are casting out demons? We've heard that the disciples were casting out demons in chapter 11. We've heard in chapter 9 that there were others casting out demons who weren't part of the disciples. How are they doing it? Are these accusers saying that everyone who seems to be making any progress against uh, the demons is evil? Jesus warns them, the very ones they accuse of evil will one day stand in judgment over them. The idea of Satan actively undermining himself is ridiculous. And it demonstrates just how prejudiced his accusers were. They looked at the evidence and the conclusion they drew was the opposite of reality. They called good evil and evil good. They saw what Jesus was doing and and in it they saw the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus isn't finished with them. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 20. 
You see, his accusers have been focused on what's leaving, the demons, and they haven't been focused on what has been coming, the implication of Jesus casting out demons. And Jesus is never one to miss an opportunity to drive his people back to the scriptures. And so he mentions the finger of God. This comes from Exodus chapter 8, during the third plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The first plague was the turning of water into blood. In chapter 7, we're told that afterwards, the Egyptian magicians, by their secret arts, were able to repeat that sign. The second plague was the frogs covering the land. And again, uh, this is the beginning of chapter 8, and again, this was something that the magicians, by their arts, were able to reproduce. But things changed with the third plague. It's then that the dust was turned into gnats. And try as they might, the magicians were, were completely unable to repeat this sign. Beaten, they confessed to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They finally realized that something was at work, the likes of which they had never seen before. The God of heaven and earth was, was on the move and, and nothing would keep him at bay. Jesus is saying that something that significant is happening again. His conquest over the demons is a demonstration that the God of heaven and earth is once again on the move. All that the prophets foretold is being fulfilled. And this goes back to the earliest chapters of the Bible. God warned Satan that one would come who would have victory over him. And he would be the one to set all things right. This is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray for in the Lord's Prayer that we looked at last week. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the end goal of all things. The holiness of heaven transforming the earth into something new. And then he goes on and he likens the earth to a house that has been guarded by a strong man whom no one has been able to overcome. The strong man is Satan who has been keeping the world in darkness. And that, that reality is demonstrated by the fact that up until this point, uh, the truth has been limited to one nation, one group of people, the Jews, really, except for a few odds and ends, strays here and there, one group has, has known the Lord. And Revelation says that the binding of Satan will be marked out by two things, <laughs> martyrdom, persecution, and the Gentiles coming to faith. And Jesus says, this has begun. He is stronger than Satan and he is plundering Satan's house. He's taking those who once belonged to him. And as Jesus begins to cast out demons, he's signaling that all that the people have been waiting for since the beginning is starting to happen and take place. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world. This was irrefutable proof that the kingdom of God had been inaugurated and that Jesus is the king who is accepting subjects and citizens into his kingdom. By choosing to invoke language from the Exodus, Jesus is, is really pronouncing an indictment against his accusers. If his, if his opponents choose to witness his sign and yet harden their hearts, 
then they are no different than Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Being physical descendants of Abraham would benefit them nothing if they reject the king of heaven. Now I said there are two kinds of antagonism or hostility in our passage. We've looked at that first, that overt, accusing Jesus of evil. The second is more subtle, and yet it's no less deadly. We're told in verse 16 that others kept seeking signs from heaven to test him. They saw Jesus simply as a a wonder worker, something akin to a, a carnival performer. They wanted him to entertain them. Or they wanted him to heal a friend or a relative. Maybe they thought that his chasing away the demons would help clean up the neighborhood and make it a nicer place to live. He was helpful insofar as his works aligned with their desires. They wanted him to submit to them. They wanted to test him. They saw him as the one who needed to prove himself. They weren't accusing him of colluding with the devil, but neither were they bowing their knees and submitting to him. Their allegiance was to themselves. If there was a throne, they believed that they were its rightful occupants, not Jesus. Today, you hear self-interest in comments like this. I I don't hate Jesus. He was a good, moral man and a teacher. I'm just not a fanatic or anything. You hear it when people quote him in service of their own goals. They say, I don't like it when people talk about sin. Jesus was more about love. It's seen in those who claim that you can't have Jesus as Savior and refuse him as Lord. And then there are people who see that their lives have become a mess and they think they'll give Jesus a try in order to improve their quality of life. It's not loyalty. It's an alliance of convenience aimed at getting what they want. Self-interest is a a, a more subtle form of antagonism, but it is no less deadly. And so how does Jesus respond to these? He says that those who are not for him are against him. If this sounds familiar, it's because he said something similar in chapter 9. The one who's not against you is for you. His point is that there's no neutrality when it comes to God. You're for him or you're against him. To not be devoted to him, loyal to him, subject to him, is to be his enemy. How could it be any other way when it comes to the creator of heaven and earth? When loyalty is due, ambivalence is treason. When love is appropriate, indifference is hatred. Jesus goes on to explain the problem of self-interest. If the only thing you think Jesus is helpful for is sending demons away 
and clean out the house so you can have a better life, if you, if you don't fill that house with something else, if your house and your life are simply empty, then your relief will be temporary at best. Because that evil spirit that went away will find seven others and come back. And when he returns, there will be no one to keep him out. And he will make your life more miserable than it has ever been. This is the problem of people who see Jesus and Christianity as, as helpful tools to get their lives cleaned up, but have no real devotion to Jesus. That alliance of convenience is shallow and it is short-lived. And when sin returns, it does so with a vengeance. There are two common temptations that this passage addresses head-on. And the first is to ignore the lines that Jesus has drawn. We like to give people a pass when they're not devoted to Jesus. We say things like, oh, he's a good person. I can't imagine God judging him. And Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. Jesus is kind. Jesus is merciful. And he forgives all who come to him in humble repentance. But not one person will be in heaven who has not bowed his or her knee in complete surrender to Jesus as king. The only division in this world that truly matters is between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. The only thing that really does matter is what you do with Jesus. He bled and he died on the cross to grant forgiveness. He paved the way to heaven through his sacrificial death and his perfect life. Heaven is free and open to all who humbly come and bow before him asking for forgiveness. That's the line he draws and we are not free to erase it. And that leads to the other temptation that our passage addresses, the temptation to draw lines that he hasn't. The church has become so comfortable with drawing lines that Jesus has not. We carve the body of Christ up into to smaller and smaller subsections, looking at others with eyes of suspicion. And, and beloved, it's not that we can't talk about our differences and rigorously seek to go and to resolve those differences with God's word, but we need to learn to do so with charity and patience and love. We need to quit the name-calling the language of suspicion. Yes, whoever is not for Jesus is against him, but let us not forget what he said earlier. The one who is not against you is with you. Don't be so arrogant that you might end up disparaging the work of God's Spirit. The Lord is at work in the hearts and lives of, of Christians in many different churches and denominations. Let us love and encourage one another and even possibly learn from one another. This reality 
is driven home this morning in the Lord's Supper. Because there's one requirement for coming to this table, and it's what you do with Jesus. This table does not belong to those who accuse him of evil, and this table is not for those who casually seek an alliance of convenience with him. This meal belongs to those who have confessed their sin and have bowed before him as Lord and King. It's for those who have submitted to Jesus' rule in their lives through accountability to a local Bible-believing church. If that is not true of you, the Lord commands that you address that before you come. Likewise, this table reminds us that those who have bowed before Jesus are united to him. 1 Corinthians reminds us the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is the bread that we the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then and then 1 Corinthians goes on and says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. As a participation in Jesus' blood, it promises us that we have peace with God and, and that you have been rescued from Satan's house, that you are protected by the one who is stronger than all others. You've been rescued and you can never be taken back into slavery. But that common loaf reminds us that you have been given peace with all who belong to Jesus. Our unity is not found in our perfect agreement with one another. Our unity is found in that we have a common Savior. Our unity is found in the sweet reality that He has rescued us from Satan's house and allowed us to dwell in His. That we are citizens and members of His kingdom. That is the greatest bond two people could ever have and it's ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know how easily we find fault with you. You know how easily we are tempted to think that you are the one who must prove yourself and that you are here to make our lives easier. Forgive our arrogance. We thank you that you have answered the most important question. What really matters is whether we are for you or against you. May we always be for you. May we never stand opposed to you. May we submit to you and find joy and comfort in doing so. Teach us that perfect contentment that comes with surrender. For you are our Lord and you are our King, and in you do we take refuge and comfort. Amen.